This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tools for Trails, because tough trails need tough tools. They offer a wide variety of quality tools and accessories for trail building that are tested and proven by industry leaders. Tools include the Proho 70AR Travis Tool, a multifaceted tool that can do everything you want during trail maintenance. And for trail planning, there's the Sunto PM5 360PC Clinometer to always get your grades correct. For a limited time, Tools for Trails is offering listeners 30% off any order. So visit toolsfortrails.com slash discount slash podcast and get your organization stocked up for the trail building season. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. This episode's conversation was recorded and my intros were written at what was a very different time. Now, at the time of recording this intro and the release of this episode, the world is collectively dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. The fact that this episode was created in a simpler time is something I welcome right now. And I think it could act as a great distraction from the current news cycle and boredom we're all facing. As this podcast is the only thing I have left that resembles a job, it was a needed escape from what has become normal life at home. Before we launch into this episode, I do want to follow up on the special episode that was launched two weeks ago. We discussed trail days and messaging from trail associations in response to COVID-19. Over the last two weeks, I've seen a lot of great messaging from trail associations all over the world, and I wanted to highlight one message in particular. I'm not entirely sure who created it, but I first saw it from the Panine Mountain Bike Association in the UK, and it's simply no car, no nar, and not far. It's a basic, memorable message that, frankly, I think many governments around the world could take a lesson from, as even the term social distancing requires an explanation to better understand it. So if you haven't got a message to riders in your community on what cycling should look like in a pandemic, I think no car, no nar, and not far is perfect. And for God's sakes, no group rides. Now with that, here's an episode from a time when COVID-19 was just an unnamed coronavirus and none of us knew anything about the Tiger King. The sport of mountain biking is divided right now when it comes to e-mountain bikes. But I'm not referring to the divide of those who like e-mountain bikes and those against. Instead, I believe we have a user group that are continuing to binge on e-mountain bike content while the rest of us are burnt out and avoiding it. I have to admit that I find myself in the latter group. And I mentioned that during today's episode. If you're in the former camp, I'm confident you'll like this episode. But if you're anything like me and you're turning off of the e-mountain bike discussion, today's conversation and the article written by my guest are a refreshing new perspective that's worth listening to. Now, I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 74 of Frontlines. I'd like to welcome my next guest, Joe Vadaboncor. He's the president of the Shawamigan Area Mountain Bike Association, also known as CAMBA. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. You know, you're going to get a, a provisional Wisconsin membership card by being able to say Shawamigan. <laughs> yeah, practice. Practice makes perfect. Uh, so uh, previous to, to you being uh, president of CAMBA, 
you worked at Trek for a number of years and, and just tell us a little bit of the, the history of how that all got started and, and kind of your time there with Trek. Okay. So I've told this story a few times and normally I start by saying, well, I worked at Trek for a long time. In fact, the dinosaurs died and then I went to work for Trek the next day. Um, <laughs> yes, that does mean I'm old. Uh, and But at the same time, it means that I worked there for uh, just short of 30 years. Kind of the way I talk about that is uh, Trek was a, a small company when I started there and became a bigger company while I was working there. And that made it uh, kind of an interesting place to be because, you know, we we were a small company doing small company things. And then eventually, by the time I left, we were a big company doing bigger company things. When I started at Trek, I was a sales rep, progressed from a sales rep to a sales management position uh, from there to a product manager. I was always kind of the geeky bike guy with a lot of bike suggestions. And then from being a product manager to running product development overall, uh, eventually ran the marketing department uh, at Trek as well. And then finished my uh, career there by working in the retail department. So I ran the direct uh, retail department. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I it's hard for me to even imagine Trek as a startup, as a small organization, <laughs> right? They're such a, a, a big brand in, in the industry. Um, but obviously, you know, everybody, everything's everyone and everything starts somewhere. So yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and we dealt with the small company challenges just like any other startup or small company does. And, you know, you, you succeed at some of them and you, and you fail uh, mightily at, at others. Um, and Trek has that history as well. So good, good people, a good brand, uh, a lot of uh, really passionate cyclist types there, including the, the family that owns it. And, uh, you know, they work hard at trying to do the right thing and they do some good things and they make mistakes just like everyone. And proud to say that I was part of both sides of that coin. So making mistakes and, and doing some good things. So when and how did you get involved with your local trail association? Well, okay. So at heart, I've always been a, a cyclist, but in particular, a, a mountain biker. Uh, and then living in my part of the world, you know, you kind of had to search out the places to go ride your bike. And I had a, had a busy role at, at Trek and, and uh, somewhere along the way, my wife and family, we decided we needed a vacation home that we could get away from the job and get away from the city Madison that we lived in. And so we bought a little cabin up in the Schwamigan National Forest in northern Wisconsin because it had skiing out the door uh, one part of the season and mountain bike trails out the door the other part of the season. And that became our kind of weekend getaway place and, and uh, just part of our lives. Uh, so then when, when I left Trek, uh, we made a decision, my wife and I, to sell our place in Madison and moved in full-time in our little cabin uh, up in the Northwoods. Knew I needed, uh, when I moved up here, I needed, wanted to get involved with the community, and I had this passion over mountain biking. So the obvious spot for me to kind of get involved with the community uh, and be an advocate for something was on the mountain bike side. There was a board seat open, and I put my name in the hat uh, to be elected. At, uh, this was two years ago. So I've been on the board now for a couple of years. Uh, interestingly, you know, I kind of took it upon myself. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get involved with all the different aspects of this organization, so I understand what it does and who's involved and who does what and what its relationships are with either land managers or community or businesses or whatever that is. So I went to 
every committee meeting and and uh, every function and volunteered. Uh, and a couple of months in, the current board at the moment looked at me and said, "Well." geez, that guy's really involved. Let's just make him board president. And <laughs> so uh, prior to, to you kind of coming into, into Kama and getting involved, had the board discussed e-mountain bikes and e-bikes at all? Yes, is the, is the direct answer. The board had uh, discussed when I looked back, one of my activities when I first came on was I, you know, took the last couple of years of uh, board meeting notes and I reviewed every single one and read through them. And I saw the debates and the conversations around e-mountain bikes in the in the years prior. Uh, there was a definite both sides of the table, you know, one side of the table for it and another side of the table concerned uh, and, and cautious. And so there was a survey done by the board, previous board, to me being on the board, there was a survey done of our members. And, and in those half a dozen questions were a couple that were specific around e-mountain bike. And th- I think the board didn't want to send a survey out that was just, you know, three questions around e-mountain bikes. So they buried the, the questions in a larger survey of, I said six, but I think it was more like 12 questions. But in there were some specific questions to get membership feedback on e-mountain bikes and e-mountain bikes specifically on our trails. Very, very mixed. Uh, really no different than if you follow any article out there uh, now in regards to e-mountain bikes. You know, there's the the one side of the coin that says, you know, I love, I've tried them, I love them, uh, and I don't understand why someone would be against them. And then the other side that has a more cautious, either a more cautious point of view about what will this do for trail access or the passionate enthusiast that says, look, I pedal for my, for my turns and earn, earn my turns and, and I'm not, I don't want to share the trail with somebody that isn't paying this, their dues. So you get that, that broad spectrum and we, and we got it and we saw that. And so kind of coming out of that, that survey, I mean, I think for the most part, uh, if, if anybody's seen or done any of these surveys, I, I, my guess is that results are going to be kind of pretty similar across geographic regions. I think, um, I think that there's that divide certainly that's out there within mountain biking. I think you've, you've got your, your (laughs) vocal, uh, vocal folks on either side of that argument as well, but going from those results, what, what was kind of the board's decision? Well, that previous board review reviewed those results and frankly made a decision to not make a decision. Okay. (laughs) You know, like your mom always told you, you know, not making a decision is a decision. And, uh, and that's, that's actually what they, what they did is they, they, the website, when I, well, still to this day has no policy. Uh, our, our, our trails website, our land managers know that we have no policy on it. Uh, and so the, so the board just made a decision to wait and see, let's just, let's just, you know, like put our heads down, wait and see, maybe it'll look different at some point in the future. Mm. Okay. Uh, okay. So then I joined, you know, if you want to continue the story, well, yeah, yeah. Keep going. I joined the, the board and I came from a, industry point of view and the industry point of view is is frankly these things are coming so you better get ready for them uh mm-hmm. and and people want to buy them and they're buying them in droves and as a trail group we better figure ourselves out i remember in an early meeting me saying you know guys we we serve not only our local community which is really small i mean there's only maybe if you round up all the little communities around there's like ten thousand people 
But Minneapolis is three hours away and Madison is five hours away and Milwaukee's five and a half hours away and Chicago's six and a half hours away. So there's some, we're serving some big audiences when we, mm-hmm. when we throw those numbers around and those people have choices was my point of view. Like that, like if you live in Minneapolis and you draw a three hour circle around, there's five different places you can go ride your mountain bike. And we want those folks to come and ride their mountain bike here. And if Minneapolis bike shops are selling e-mountain bikes hand over fist, then those people are going to want to go ride those somewhere. And we are quickly going to lose favor if we don't have a policy. So that was my point of view when I walked in. The rest of the board looked at me and said, well, you're board president. Let's, you know, let's kind of take this on, I guess. Yeah. So I called my friends at People for Bikes. I uh, borrowed their playbook on on how to go through this. And I contacted the local bike shops and contacted Trek and Specialized who are represented at the local bike shops. And we put together a plan. We held meetings with members. We sort of a town hall format. We held a informational meeting and demo with our, we have five different land managers and they all came and represented. And we, and we did a demo on, with permission of one of the land managers on, on a section of trail uh, and we went through that whole process. And during that process, I realized that I thought I knew all the answers because I came from the industry side. But in fact, I really didn't have the answers to make an informed decision around the topic. So interesting. that kind of led me to trying to document those things that I didn't know or that I didn't feel I had the answers or the industry hadn't adequately answered, uh, f- to, to help this process along. Uh, and that's the, that's the article that maybe some people have seen. I, I titled it, uh, e-mount bike thoughts, um, the trouble with, with e-mount bikes. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I go through, you know, what those half a dozen things are that I felt were challenges for a trail group like mine, working with its land managers to come up with a policy around e-mountain bikes. Yeah. I want to come back to that article because I think it's a, a really refreshing take on on what could be, you know, in, in some in some cases, a, kind of a, a blown out topic, right? I think I'm starting to kind of click out a little bit with the e-mountain bike discussion. And, and so, yeah. you know, it was like, you know, I saw that kind of come through. It took me a few scrolls past that article to be like, all right, let me read this article, right? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm automatically into like, you know, filter out, right? Sure. It's, uh, yeah. I think even Pink Bike has an option to just completely filter out any e-mountain bike content <laughs> on their website right now, right? right. And, uh, and so, but before before we kind of dive in, into that article, just just to kind of finish that conversation about that that demo uh, event, who was invited to that in- event? First of all, uh, both bike shops came with a fleet of demo bikes that they borrowed from, either owned or borrowed from their suppliers. So there was a, a van of full of two different brands of bikes from two different bike shops there. And they helped me facilitate it. So they sent a mechanic to set up bikes and charge the bikes and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So it was a really nice setup for the attendees. Uh, we, we have five different land managers, uh, two private land managers and uh, three public entities as well. One of them is a national forest and two of them are two different county forests. So we're in Sawyer County and Bayfield County in Wisconsin, and there's a county forest system here. And so the the manager of that county forest, either the manager came or sent a representative 
Uh, and we had representation from all, all of those landowners and land managers that we work with. Uh, in addition to that, I, I brought all the board members in because many of them had only, you know, seen an e-bike from a periphery and, and really hadn't ridden one or, or gotten a full presentation. Uh, I invited the uh, local sales reps from those two brands so they could sit in to answer any kind of industry questions. Uh, and then I brought a few members of the community in from both sides of the coin, a couple of members that are e-mountain bike owners that wanted to express their point of view, and then a couple of members that are community citizens that were vocally against e-mountain bikes. So a really broad cross-section was invited to the meeting. Uh, we set up the meeting where um, people I say, don't give Joe a microphone and a PowerPoint because he's, he's never going to sit down. And sure enough, that's, <laughs> that's what I did. And, uh, I put together a presentation, right? Cause I'm from the industry and I'm going to convince all these people in the room that this is the right thing for us to do. Yeah. And I stood up there with a microphone and walked everybody through, you know, what's an e-bike, what's the status of e-bike overall. Then I drilled down yeah. to, you know, what's going on with e-mountain bikes. I drew the parallels and comparisons between North America and the rest of the world. And and then I gave the floor over to uh, anybody that from a point of view, like those industry reps or the community representatives to express their point of view. And then I kind of opened it up to questions from the room and between myself, uh, the executive director of the CAMBA board, I'm sorry, of the CAMBA organization, and then the two industry representatives, we fielded all those questions and tried to answer anything that anybody wanted to ask or talk about getting you know land managers out uh, on these bikes you know certainly has to to create some some interesting <laughs> feedback you know what what were they really saying right. after getting out there and experiencing this so that that i just described what is maybe called phase one of the meeting which was a you know sitting in a meeting room uh, and then we went outside where with everything was set up and we set everybody up on a bike and took them for a ride on the trail uh, guided at first. And then we let them loose and said, you know, go ride, go ride and, and have fun. It was interesting. The shop people, these are a couple of pretty responsible shops that we have in town. They sent the, sent the riders out on a medium or a low setting and cautioned them and said, here's how you adjust the setting. But unless you're really comfortable, I wouldn't use it on the most powerful setting. Bear in mind, these are Trek and specialized E mountain bikes that are all, that were all class one. So they're a 250 watt standard motor, 750 watt peak motor. The proper bikes, in other words, on a, on a medium setting, everybody to a person came back and said, wow, I definitely don't need anything more powerful than that. A couple of them flipped it up to the turbo mode and, <laughs> and, and came back with a terrified look on their face. Yeah. Of, you yeah. know. And, and these are forest service managers. This isn't your normal enthusiast. And I, I don't mean to pick on forest service folks, but, but you know, they're not cyclists. They're, they're average human beings that are outdoor oriented in some way, but they're not cyclists. They might be hunters or boaters or snowmobile riders or whatever they are, but they're, they're not necessarily cyclists. You know, in many cases they haven't ridden bikes very much at all. Uh, and they took them out on our, on our advice. 
with a helmet, with, you know, with a little bit of pre-ride instruction to make sure they understood what they were doing. What I actually think is a pretty good example for what happens in a bike shop for the customer that might be interested in an e-bike. You know, they, they don't really understand all that stuff. They get some instruction, they take it out for a ride. These guys came back and they were just terrified. In fact, they were, one of their points of view was these things are way too powerful. Like I, I, I don't understand why anybody would need something that powerful on the trail. You know, I've heard that since from retailers. A lot of retailers will tell me that, you know, I think that, that the power is okay, maybe a little strong on the road, but off-road, man, a class one bike can be way too fast and way too powerful. Definitely going to be including links in the show notes to your article, and I encourage everybody to to read it. But kind of give us some of the the highlights and some of the the main points that were that were made, or the questions that were asked. Yeah, the questions that you can imagine: uh, uh, Do these things do more damage to the trail? Or they'll say, "Do we need do trails need to change in some way to accommodate these?" Uh, they, they ask, you know, who's the customer? They ask, uh, are there any regulations on the industry so that we know they're not going to get faster and more powerful? A bunch of questions that I would challenge just about anybody to to be able to stand in front of this group and and say categorically, you have answers to the to those questions. And if you go go to my article, uh, you know, I'd love it if and people read it and and want to throw questions or thoughts at me. But I can summarize a few things. The first one is there's a real lack of data. Data around do they do more damage to the trails? Do trails need to change in some way? Do they need to, to be on one-way trails only? Do sight lines need to change? There's a real lack of data around that. I had in my presentation uh, a copy of the a summary of the 2014 IMBA study. Which, which tries to present that they really don't do more, more damage to a trail than, a, than our standard mountain bike does. And it's interesting when you present that to people that are used to looking at more scientific studies. They quickly poke mm-hmm. holes in that thing and say, this is not a real study. This doesn't really answer the question uh, from a lot of different perspectives. Either we don't have terrain like they were testing on here. That's rocky. Ours is black dirt and rooty. To, well, that's was done with six riders that are all expert level riders. That's not really the, the customer profile. You know, they just start right. picking all kinds of holes in it. Uh, and they're right. It, it really, and, and I've gone back to IMBA and they admit that it was a hastily done study to try and get some data. Um, but in hindsight, it needs a lot more uh, to be flushed out in a lot of different ways. And then, the, you know, and then, of course, there, as I said, there just isn't a lot of data out there on what kind of trails should e-mountain bikes be allowed on and what kind shouldn't they be. We can all speculate. I get a lot when I make this that statement, I get a lot of speculation from people telling me, well, they don't think that they go any faster on an e-bike than they do on a regular bike. But again, it's all speculation. None of it is really documented in some fashion that can be trusted and can be looked at by somebody who isn't biased in one way or the other and say, yeah, this, this study, you know, seems pretty sound. That's the first point. There's just a lack of data. And maybe the data will be, will show that it doesn't do any damage and drills don't need to change. Yeah. My point is, it's just, it's just me standing up in front of a land manager saying, 
but we don't think it does any more data, any more damage at yeah. all. And that's yeah. not adequate yeah. in my mind. Yeah. So, you know, my second one is a, is a, frankly, a larger issue than, than maybe can be handled by my point of view in the industry. So if we go, let, let me, let's tell a story, just a brief story. Uh, yeah, go ahead. The e-bikes as we know them today started as transportation vehicles in countries in Europe that have a high use of bicycle as transportation. They really weren't designed originally as recreational vehicles. They were transportation vehicles. So it's, it's the Netherlands where bikes are transportation or it's Copenhagen where bikes are transportation. And most of those bicycles go on either sometimes on, on roads that are shared with vehicles, but many, many times, oftentimes on bike paths. And so a class one, as we call it in North America, the same classification in those countries is a lower speed vehicle than what we have because they need to share with on bike paths, which are very crowded and have two way traffic and a lot of stop signs. And so they only go 20 kilometers an hour. Our class one goes 20 miles an hour before the power cuts yeah. out. We did that in the US because we more in North America rather, because we more often share the road with vehicles than we do on segregated bike paths. And we felt that, okay, the distances are further, the roads are straighter, and we need to, to be able to go a little more with traffic. And so that's 20 miles an hour seemed like the better speed for the U.S. That was never really thought about as in those early conversations. It was never really, no one ever actually on the industry side said, and 20 miles an hour is the right speed for off-road. Yeah. <laughs> it just sort yeah. of went from road and got carried over to off-road without, frankly, a lot of research or thought on it. It was just sort of, well, you know, how about we just call E-Mountain Bike Class 1 as well? I'm, I'm making, you know, making light of it. But in fact, it wasn't a lot more sophisticated than that. I know that because I was on that side of the industry at the time when those classifications were designated. I think in hindsight, there should have been a lower power for off-road. That nobody needs a 70, 750 peak wattage for off-road. It's just, it's unnecessary. You and I, Brent, I don't know you that well, so I can't say for sure, but I know I can't put out <laughs> anywhere near 750 watts at any moment on the trail. And, and I can go at a speed that I can go way too fast for the trail um, yeah, yeah. on most trails. So it just seems like it was an arbitrary number that, was never really well thought out. And I actually think it was a mistake. I think bikes, e-mountain bikes are too fast and too powerful, even at class one. That might be water under the bridge at this point. Most of my industry friends tell me that, oh God, Joe, there's no way we could address that now. Um, yeah. But I, but I do point it out that I think that is an obstacle to, to where we are. Well, and I think that speaks to a lot of the frustration that, uh, you know, we as advocates face is that like, you know, this has been dropped on our laps and that, you know, it's the, the thing where it's like, well, they're here and they're here to stay. And so right. deal with it type of thing. Right. And, and, uh, and it's like, yeah, you know, but that still doesn't mean that we can't grumble and groan about it. And, and, you know, I, it's a, it's a tough one to kind of play catch up on, but right. I think it would have been a tough one to, 
to, to even if we had a seat at that table early and we're trying to make that case of of you know a separate e mountain bike classification it's it's tough you know it really sounds like the the industry and there's there's definitely i think this perception amongst advocates that the the industry doesn't quite understand you know how trails and access and advocacy works you know and 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 you know would you say that that's that's a pretty good understanding of, of, the, of the industry? So, yeah, absolutely. Actually, <laughs> when I first wrote this article before I published it, I sent it to a, a friend of mine, Hansi Johnson, who lives in Duluth and who used to be. Yeah. And we've had him on the show. Yeah, actually, before. He used to be with him, but still an advocate. He works for a land trust, you know, and, uh, you know, he's, he's around his, his whole life is around outdoor recreation. And I just wanted to, you know, Hansi, before I show a bunch of people, this article that I, don't know me. What's your thoughts? And he just busted out laughing afterward. And he laughed at me because he, he laughed and said, Joe, you know, it's so fun watching you go from part of the industry to, to being an advocate because, (laughs) because he had been saying exactly what you just said for years and years and years. And he, and he was working hard in his Zimba role and in other roles to try and integrate and show the industry and help the industry along. He's an awesome person and, and an awesome mm-hmm. advocate, but his, that's been one of his points of view. And, and I frankly agree with him now that although the industry knows a lot about product development and its customers and how they want to use it, they really don't know much eh, I, that that's overstated, but they, they oftentimes don't exhibit a lot of knowledge around how, advocates interact with land managers, how a trail comes to be, how it gets on the ground, what it costs to put that trail on the ground, both in cash and human terms and in relationship terms, what a tenuous situation the the trail is uh, in, in its position in the community or position in a forest, mm. uh, and, and just how you know, we, we, uh, myself as a board president and, and our, our executive director have an awesome relationship with a couple of our land managers. But in another case, we have a land manager that has changed. You know, the person that we originally were interacting with is no longer there. And now that relationship is a challenge. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, if we want to put a new trail down in one part of our system, it's super easy. And another part of our system, oh, we should go through this process and make sure we don't get called out and blah, blah, blah. And the industry really doesn't have any day-to-day understanding of that process. Uh, and frankly, sometimes like this e-mountain bike, the way it's progressed can, can get in the way of that, that relationship between a land manager and an advocate. So, yeah. And, and I don't know if you can ever change that. I mean, I think it'd be really nice to say, I, I was asked to make a, be part of a panel at a, at a uh, presentation that people for bikes did. And, and, when, when we were asked, when the panel members were all asked, what is the one thing, one piece of advice you'd like to give to the industry? My piece of advice was, if you really want to understand trails and how trails get on the ground, join a trail club, volunteer, be mm-hmm. part of a trail mm-hmm. club, do something in relation to this process, and you'll start to understand mm-hmm. it. Well, and they certainly need your help, too. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the, there's an interesting story in my, in my article that I want to tell here as well of how, when, when one of the land managers asked me, is there any governor on the industry 
so that we know that these are not going to get more powerful and faster in the future. And the story that he told me to validate why he had that concern was he was the national forest manager. And he said, um, here's the story I'll tell you, Joe. Joe, we had ATV trails and, and an ATV is a, is a four-wheeled vehicle that one person rides on. And now uh, the industry magically one day started selling UTVs, which is can, you know, can handle four or more riders sitting side by side. And what happened was an ATV was a vehicle that was, I'm going to use round numbers, but it was 48 inches wide. The trail had to be 48 or 50 inches wide. And it had to accommodate a vehicle that was going about 40 miles an hour. And now a UTV is the trails need to be 70 plus inches wide. And they need to accommodate a vehicle that might go 80, 90, or 100 miles an hour. Now, as you can imagine, those are two entirely different trails. But in his tenure as the National Forest Manager, they went from ATVs or what they were seeing on their ATV trails to UTVs. And so they had to change all the trails. And he said, this is why I know that, that this is what's coming. Like, like human nature says these things will get faster and the trails will need to change in some way. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. And he wasn't trying to be a know-it-all and tell me how they needed to change, but rather just acknowledging, getting me to acknowledge that, yeah, there's, if with no regulation or no control on what can be sold as an e-mountain bike, they will get faster and your, and your trails will at some point need to change. I would say that's already coming true. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to compare those two, uh, well, the, the side-by-sides, the UTVs and, and, and mountain bikes as well. I mean, when you look at the marketing material from side-by-side manufacturers, I mean, it is, the commercials are, they are ripping, they're going mm-hmm. very fast. It looks mm-hmm. like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, when we talk about mark, mountain bike marketing, you know, and this is a, a point that you bring up in your article as well, it's the same kind of so extreme God, yeah. riding, berm destroying <laughs> kind of marketing and the same is being used for e-mountain bikes as yeah. well. And your point that you make in your article is that, you know, that's not your average e-mountain bike user, it, much in the same way that it's not your, your average mountain biker. I mean, yes. what, what yeah. the professionals are doing is nothing to what 99% of mountain bikers are doing out there, but speed, speed sells. Oh God, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I love this point because I'm so guilty. Like I was, I was signing off on that marketing plan at Trek a few years ago and, and it had, you know, Brandon Semenek scrubbing a jump <laughs> of which there is absolutely not a single person in any of these bike companies that can ride that way, much less for the <laughs> buying public. Right. But it, but that's the kind of stuff that is marketed out there. You know, but if you go out to your local trails, it's a 29-year-old girl or guy riding by with their dog and they're just pedaling and having a good time and they're out in the countryside and they're out in the woods and they, and they're not thinking about destroying a berm and they're not thinking about getting over a double jump. But in fact, that's how we feel we need to market this stuff. And e-bikes are no different. Um, uh, so there's some there's some companies doing some really super impressive technical work on e-bikes, Trek, Specialized, go down the list, Pivot, etc. But all of them have marketing materials with somebody blowing up a berm on an e-bike or or you know shredding up or down a hill and 
they don't get written that way. None, none of them do, but yet we're marketing them that way. Well, compare that marketing to a KTM free ride bike, which is an electric motorcycle. And it's exactly the same. So, so how do we go to this land manager and say, oh, but we have to pedal to access the power versus they have to just turn a throttle. Well, that's a subtlety that, that a land manager who isn't in either the cycling or the motorcycle industry doesn't know and frankly doesn't care about. What he sees is the image is they're both blowing up a turn and creating ruts on the trail in, in exactly the same way in their minds. And so we don't do ourselves any favor there, whether it's a regular bike or an e-bike for, for that matter, but we certainly don't do ourselves any favor in that relationship. That kind of gets to that point I was making that sometimes the industry, because of that lack of understanding, actually does things that really make it more challenging, not less challenging. And this is one of those examples. And as I said, the industry is me. So I'd, I'd love to be nice and clean and have nothing spilled on me. But, but I, I actually was making those decisions and I feel super bad about it at this point in time. So. Well, you know, hey, I mean, I was buying the bike. So. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> We're all involved, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, we, when we chatted before, you know, previous to this conversation, you, you mentioned some numbers uh, just from the, the cycling industry in the United States. And I, I wanted to kind of highlight some of them that I thought were, were super interested. In, and please correct me if I, I get any of them wrong. Sure. But um, you mentioned that in the US, the cycling industry on average is, a, is about a $6 billion a year industry and and at its high point was kind of 6.1 billion dollars and that was like the the Lance Armstrong era winning tour de france's that kind of thing and and currently it's actually down at at 5.8 billion dollars a year but the the big thing that kind of surprised me is is when you told me that units sold are actually down so we're actually selling fewer bikes but making almost as close to as much money. I mean, a couple points off of a billion dollars, which is a lot of money, but <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. Not too far off of that six billion dollar mark. Yeah, if you if you look at the you know, pick pick a number pick a time frame. I, I not any time frame. Obviously, if you go back, you know, forty years, it's a different market. But if you look at the reasonable number, you know, some numbers in the last decade, let's say the bike industry in the U S is a $6 billion business. It just is. And, and I don't know if it's ever going to be any bigger than that. You can subscribe to NPD, which is a reporting agency that does reports on what the industry is. And if you look back in time, it's pretty much the same $6 billion business that it's always been. And so that in my mind, and, and nothing has changed that. Yeah, the bike boom didn't, you know, the mountain bike boom thing didn't really change it. Lance Armstrong winning seven Tour de France and and how popular road bikes were at that time didn't really change it. Um, my belief is that even e-bikes isn't really going to change that. I think that we in North America, we have an infrastructure problem, not a product problem. It's not mm. not that road bikes got a lot more exciting during Lance Armstrong years, and therefore the bike business went through the roof, people that were predisposed to want to do that kind of activity were swayed by it, but they were probably already cyclists, is what that says. And if you're a cyclist in North America, it's because you're committed to being a cyclist. It's not easy to be a cyclist in North America. You're riding with traffic <laughs> if you're riding on the roads. You got to drive a long way to find a mountain bike trail, and for most people. And so you're a committed individual. And the other the other piece of data that I don't know if we talked about in our in our last conversation is that 
this isn't just a, a U.S. phenomenon. If you take a market like um, Germany, for example, the German-speaking market, um, mountain bikes or recreational bikes that you want to take a look at there, that business is still roughly the same overall size that it was a few years ago. But today, most companies will tell you that they're selling more e-mountain bikes above a certain price point than they are regular bikes. So what's happened is the high-end mountain bike buyer has just switched. They don't, they're not buying the pedal bike anymore at $3,500. They're buying the e-bike at $3,500. Or maybe the, instead of $3,500, they're now spending $4,000 for the e-bike. But the industry really isn't, the, the mountain bike section, the high-end mountain bike section, isn't really growing there. It's just changed over from regular mountain bikes to e-mountain bikes. And I think all of those things really, in my mind, bring into the question, bring into question this statement that e-bikes are going to help more people get involved in cycling. I don't know if that's true. I'd love it if it is true, right? I'm a cyclist and I yeah. love the industry and I'm a mountain biker and, I, and we have this 125 miles of single track that we'd love to have more people enjoy, but I actually don't think it's true. But even if it is true, like, let's say the industry is right and Joe's completely wrong that this is going to grow the industry. Well, okay. So today, Canva, these are numbers that are published on our website. We spend about $100,000 a year on the actual trails themselves. We have our economic impact study and our trail counters show that we have approximately 25,000 people a year on our trails. Uh, and we spend about $100,000. Um, building and maintaining those trails. If that 25,000 number became 50,000, does that mean that we need $200,000 to build and maintain trails? I don't know. Maybe it, maybe we don't maybe it's not a one to one and it doesn't grow all the way to double the number. Mm. But mm. I think a I think a logical statement would be at some level of growth it requires more money to maintain those trails and build those trails. Well, I don't know where that money is going to come from. If you're listening to this and you're an advocate, I guarantee you this is your your daily challenge is budget and and finding funding to build trails. And so I, you know, like great, let's have more people on the trails, but how as a trail group, how are we going to manage that? Yeah, yeah. So that was one of another one of my summary points we just hit on there was okay, if this does drive growth, if it currently costs me about a dollar a foot every three to four years and about somewhere between three bucks and seven bucks a foot, depending on the terrain I'm building on to build trails. Well, that's when you do the math, that's a lot of money. And where does that, where's the money going to come from to, to build that? There's two things that I kind of want to finish up on here. And, and the first one is, is what's, uh, what's next for you? Like what's, what's kind of the plan moving forwards with this? I think this article's got a lot of attention. I'm excited to kind of keep this conversation going with, with the front lines audience. And I, I know that a lot of folks are going to want to kind of get into this and, um, but what are you kind of planning on doing next with this? Well, I think that as much as I feel like I was set back from my original point of view, uh, my original point of view was e-bikes are coming and we better prepare ourselves for them. And, and uh, the elements that are in this article show how I was set back because there's not answers in some of these things. I think that's where, where I go next is how do we, how do we get answers to some of these questions? How do, how do we create an environment that 
helps us get these answers or helps us find this funding or helps the industry understand this equation a little bit more. Because I still think I'm right from my very first point of view that this is coming and we can't ignore it as trail advocates. And we have to do something. Uh, and, and I'd rather say do something than do nothing uh, about it. So I think that's that's my answer is I'm, I'm a committed advocate and I'm committed to trying to get these answers. And I don't know if that means that the right answer is they should never be on non-motorized trails or if they should be on certain motorized trails, or if certain bikes should be on certain motorized trails. Uh, I don't know what that final answer is, but I, th- but I think we deserve it. We deserve getting that answer for our user base, for our land managers, for our members, and for the trails themselves. And and to kind of build off of your remark about about doing nothing, you know, what would you suggest that a trail association who maybe hasn't done anything about this or maybe they've done the the resolution to do nothing they've made an agreement to do nothing what would you suggest to one of those trail associations what should they do when it comes to to e-mountain bikes what's their next step well the first thing i would do is there are community members that are interested in this topic it could be one side or the other on the equation on how they feel about e-bikes. I either want one or I have one and I want to be able to ride, or I never want to see one on the trail. They're both valid points of view that need to be engaged. The second point is your community that supports you wants an answer. Mm. Meaning, how do we generate that hundred thousand dollars? Well, we do fundraisers. So there's our there's our donors or participants in some way, or we have businesses locally that sponsor the trail club that help us generate that money. Well, they all want to see you come up with an answer as well. Uh, because, well, for a lot of reasons, if it's a bike shop, they want to sell e-bikes. Uh, if it's a, and, and, you know, without trails, bike shops don't exist. And without bike shops, trails don't really exist. So, so you kind of have to figure out how you're going to work with them. And so that your business community members, they all want to help you or see you come up with an answer. And so they generally like to participate in that as well. Your land managers would prefer, frankly, that you come up with an answer uh, versus not. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of high profile situations out there of trail clubs not understanding their land managers' uh, opinions, thoughts, and desires very well, and then losing access, you know, whether that's Kingdom Trails of Later or any other story that we can all think of. And so you, you do need to figure out how to engage with your land managers and help them understand the situation and help them come to uh, an, uh, an answer. If they're the kind of land manager that wants to give you the answer, they might be. Or if they're the kind of land manager that wants you to give them the answer, nonetheless, I'd say you, you got to engage and you got to work with them. Uh, and then I would say, make your voice heard. Uh, it's um, I have a silly little personal website that I published this article on. And I may have connections in the industry and that's how it got circulated. But I promise you, your voice is more important than you think it is as an advocate, because none of this trails don't happen without advocates. So call Imba, let them know your point of view, call people for bikes, ask them questions. If you have a relationship with a bike company because they're nearby or they sponsor your trails or or their retailer does let them know what your thoughts and are on it and ask them some of these questions it would be wonderful if we could get the whole ship kind of moving in a direction and 
my old boss at Trek used to have a statement of uh, small hinges swing big doors. And it's really true. Like, you know, you may feel like you have a small voice, but if you start talking to people and asking questions, the right people, they start to perk up. Awesome. Well, Joe, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat with me. I, I really enjoyed it and I really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. It was really great and inspiring to speak with Joe, especially as my first conversation back. I can't thank him enough on joining me. One thing that stood out to me was how Joe Vatabancourt really dove into the role on the Shawamigan Area Mountain Bike Association board. If every new board member took that much effort to get involved, like reading past minutes and going to every meeting, the state of advocacy would be unstoppable. I'm excited to see where Joe is going to take this next, and I will keep everybody up to date on that process as well. Now, this episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo nations. My guests join me from the traditional territory of the Sioux and the Anishinaabe. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can also send me an email or an audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Thank you to this episode's sponsor, Tools for Trails. For a 30% discount, go to toolsfortrails.com slash discount slash podcast. And a big thanks to Susie, Ernest, Yvonne, Ule, Alex, and Rick for your support over the winter break. I now have more time to dedicate to this podcast than ever before, but like many of you, my family's financial future is uncertain. And so if you have the means, please consider supporting the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB book club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. In the show notes, you'll also find links to Joe's article, the Shawamigan Area Mountain Bike Association, and the Panine Mountain Bike Association. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Wellnack and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening. And remember, no car, no nar, and not far. Stay safe, everyone.